Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I am honored to bring in Witold Waszczykowski. He is Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Republic of Poland, and he comes to us from our Washington, D.C. office. Witold, thank you so much for joining us. I would love to start with a number of news articles that have been running in the U.S. There seems to be a perception that laws that ultimately were rejected that were brought up in Poland to possibly remove the independence of the judiciary were broadly slammed by the European Union and have sort of exacerbated the tensions. Do you think that the uh, tensions between Poland and the European Union have been overblown? Do you think that they are getting worse? Uh, and and what, what's sort of the end game here? Yes, good morning. Thank you for, for inviting me for this, uh, for this program. Uh, these are rumors. Uh, of course, sounds very scary, but uh, not, not true. Uh, we are trying to, to finish on, uh, our, our transformation, a transformation which started 27, 28 years ago after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. And the last uh, area which was not transformed, which was not uh, modernized, uh, it is a judiciary system, a legal system. Uh, and th that was the demand of our people when two years ago we, uh, we, were, we, we won the election. So generally there was an appeal of a population to, to change, to modernize this system. We are not inventing anything new. We are just importing the solution, existing solution, which are existing already in other uh, uh, members of the, the European Union. The problem is that we are... Uh, engage in a, in a dialogue. There are no tensions. There is a dialogue with the, with the Commission because there are some double standards in the Commission and the Commission thinks that what is uh, acceptable for other countries, uh, especially the Western uh, uh, friends uh, in the European Union, is not acceptable for the young democracy like Poland, is not acceptable for the uh, country which has uh, um, allegedly a, a different legal culture uh, uh, in our part of Europe. This is unacceptable for, for us. We are, as, as I said, we are not inventing anything new. We are not breaking the uh, tradition. We are not uh, imposing any restriction on the judiciary system. We just want to modernize the system, make it more efficient. Well, but what's what's at stake here? Because there is the potential for the European Union to even uh, reduce uh, the funding that it gives you or to uh, reduce voting rights. Uh, do you think that that's at stake? Because those are some of the things that have been posited. No, this is not at stake because uh, they cannot reduce the funding because uh, the fundings are not for the good behavior or for certain pattern of behavior. Uh, the, the structural funds we are getting from, uh, from Brussels uh, are part of the deal uh, we signed when we joined the uh, European Union. They are part of the European treaties. And this is uh, a compensation for the opening of the markets. Uh, we uh, joined the uh, European Union in 2004, but we opened our markets uh, at the beginning of 1990s, so more than 20, about 25 years ago. So, uh, so this is the deal in your opinion that the weaker economies uh, can be com can compensate uh, the opening of the markets to the bigger and stronger uh, economies. And so, this is nothing to do with. Uh, uh, status of democracy or, or, or legal uh, system. 
The other problem, of course, is the voting uh, procedure, Article 7 of, uh, of a treaty, but uh, it requires uh, uh, the, the consensus in the European Union to, uh, to prevent us from uh, participating in the voting. There is no such a consensus because uh, there are a number of countries, uh, members of the European Union, they believe that uh, there is nothing wrong going on in Poland. Um, one other one other article that has uh, definitely or one other idea that has caught uh, the attention of the media in the United States is this request uh, by Poland that Germany owes it at least one trillion dollars in reparations for World War II damages. Uh, has uh, Poland discussed how to pursue this money uh, and how this will impact relations between Warsaw and Berlin? Uh, this is there is no official decision of the government. This is just uh, ongoing discussion, discussion among uh, 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 politicians in the media. Uh, of course, the problem is that uh, after the Second World War, there was no peace treaty with uh, with uh, Germany, and uh, neither Poland nor many other uh, countries uh, which were devastated by the uh, German occupation, German Nazi occupation, never got any uh, any money, any compensation for the for the loss. Uh, let me remind you that uh, during the Second World War, Poland lost uh, uh, six million people. Uh, they after the Second World War, uh, they moved uh, they, the, the foreign countries. They moved our our borders. Uh, and of course, uh, number uh, we, we lost uh, uh, in a material way. Uh, for instance, the capital of Poland, uh, Warsaw, was uh, devastated. That um, more than 80 percent, maybe 90 percent of the of the buildings were totally destroyed. In the 1945, it was a stone desert. Uh, so, uh, this is a discussion right now, which is going on in Poland. Uh, why we haven't got any compensation for the, the so, so the tragic loss uh, during the Second World War, but decision is not taken by the by the government. So those figures you are just mentioned just uh, uh, figures which are existing in the media only. And uh, just real quick, would Poland uh, consider a similar request from Russia? As some have su- suggested. That's another problem, of course, because uh, uh, we were partitioned uh, uh, due to the uh, 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 German-Soviet pact. uh, uh, And uh, that's uh, the war started in 1939 and uh, Poland was occupied partially by uh, Nazi Germany, but partly by uh, by Soviets. And then, of course, we had uh, 45 years of Soviet domination over over Poland. So. Uh, all these things are considered right now and discussed uh, in Poland, but uh, as I said, there is no decision taken by the government yet. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly a pleasure to speak with Thank you, you. and uh, for setting uh, the stage from a point of honesty. Witold Waszczykowski, Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Republic of Poland, uh, coming to us from our Washington, D.C. Uh, bureau. Uh, definitely uh, interesting as the Polish government forms and negotiates with the European Union for its place.
Well, the dollar is pretty much uh, flat today after, I guess, surging yesterday, but I guess it's just a surge compared to the incredible weakening that we've seen throughout 2017 of the dollar versus its peers. I want to bring in Doug Borthwick. He's managing director and head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company. And Doug, you know, this really is one of the key questions in financial markets of the year, which is the weak dollar and how long it can keep weakening. In light of the Fed's likely December rate hike, why do you think the dollar has a good chance of continuing to weaken going forward? Well, the rate hikes you know, have been happening since the start of the year, and the dollars continue to weaken because as the U.S. hikes rates, other countries that the dollar trades against, they also turn around their central banks and say, you know what, we're thinking about getting out of quantitative easing as well. If you actually look at the numbers that were talked about yesterday on the quantitative easing and the pullback from the balance sheet, it's going to be up until it's going to take until April of next year for the balance sheet to actually start getting reduced because really what they're doing is they're tapering the current QE or reinvestment that's happening right now. And so if they turned around and said, we're going to stop reinvesting, that's one thing. But instead they said, you know what, we're going to keep on doing, we're just going to reduce the reinvestment by maybe $6 billion on the uh, treasuries for the next three months, and after that, you know, 12 and after that, 18 So it's going to take quite some time for them to get to a point where they're not still reinvesting. And that's going to be April of next year, at which time Fed Yellen may not even be in her uh, position. Well, now, the weak, the weak dollar is something that's been going on for quite some time. It's a stated fact that the president right now wants a weaker dollar to make the U.S. more competitive. Secretary Treasury Mnuchin's also pushed that point and said it's not that the dollar's weak. It's that other. It's not that the dollar's been strong lately. It's that other countries have been way too weak. So he wants other currencies to strengthen their their currencies, and we see a continuation of that. We see yesterday's move as being a pullback based upon stop losses because folks were very much looking for the Fed to step back because of hurricanes. That didn't happen, and so you saw a pullback based on the stop losses. And today the year is up about 40 points because, you know, from yesterday's lows, because of that as folks read through the numbers. All right. But, Doug, you know, the, the dollar's weakening has been the biggest decline against its peers in about a decade. We're seeing a number of big investment managers starting to tiptoe back into the dollar. Implicit in your remarks is the idea that European and other economies are accelerating faster than the U.S. is. Do you think that perhaps traders are discounting the strength that we're seeing in the economy in the U.S.? Oh, for, for sure. I don't think traders really believe that there's strength in the U.S. economy quite as much as the Fed does. And remember, what the Fed did yesterday is they stated an intention. They didn't actually move the rate. And I think that's important to understand is that since the start of the year, the Fed's been aggressively talking about how they're going to start raising rates and, and, and raise rates you know, quickly. And what's happened is the Fed stepped back, stepped back, stepped back. So certainly they've talked about having a rate rise at the end of this year in December, but it's still only 60% priced in the futures market. So folks aren't really buying 100% into what the Fed's saying. So Doug, uh, which is the most important cross to really watch? I'm looking at the uh, US dollar versus the euro, and it's currently at a 0.84% about, or 0.84 euros uh, per dollar. I'm wondering, where do you see that going? I mean, how low can it go? Well, we look at the euro against the dollar, so that's at 119.20 right okay. now. We, we believe that the fair point right now is probably around 124. Remember, we were trading 125 to 130 before Greece came into the issue, and we saw the move down to 104, 105 in the euro. Greece no longer is talked about in the markets. Nobody is concerned about what's happening in Greece, and so there should be a natural bounce back to that level playing field of the 125, 130 level, which we believe should happen. 
I think we'll see probably 125 by the end of next month, and we'll probably see 130 by the end of the year. Wow. I think that this dollar weakness is something that isn't even talked about in Germany at all. You know, when the ECB was, when Draghi was asked, "What do you think of you know, the euro?" in his statement, he, he discussed about the volatility, but he didn't discuss the specific level. The Zoo Index talked about how German industry isn't thinking about the euro whatsoever, and Merkel, as she's gone around, you know, trying to push to get the votes so she can run and uh, get reelected, hasn't ta- hasn't brought up the euro at all in any of her campaign speeches. So I don't think there's a concern right now about the level of the euro by Germany, but certainly there's a concern about the level of the dollar in the United States. And the U.S. administration certainly wants a weaker dollar going forward. Doug, what does this mean for emerging markets currencies, which have had an incredible rally this year? Do you expect them to continue uh, going that direction as the dollar weakens on a relative basis? I do, yeah. And there's a direct correlation here. As the dollar weakens against the yen and as the dollar weakens against the euro, emerging markets do well. If the dollar strengthens, emerging markets then have a problem because emerging markets have a considerable amount of external debt that's denominating U.S. dollars. So if the dollar should weaken, let's say dollar Mexico was to jump from 1790 up to 20 again, Mexican companies would have a bit of an issue in paying back their external debt. And so emerging markets are very sensitive to the strength of the dollar, but they do very well as the dollar weakens. Doug Borthwick, thank you so much. This is a crucial topic because even as the the dollar, if the dollar does keep weakening, that will also provide a support to commodity prices. And uh, as Doug was saying, will also provide uh, ongoing support for emerging markets, uh, nations. Doug Borthwick, Managing Director and Head of FX at Chapdeline and Company. This is certainly something that we will be watching. There are some pretty big money managers who recently have been talking about how uh, they are actually going back and buying the dollar, including Mellon Capital Management and State Street Global Advisors. There was a fantastic story in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week looking at Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, and looking at his political awakening. The author of this wonderful article joins me now, Max Chafkin, technology reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. And, um, you know, Max, I love that uh, Mark Zuckerberg went on paternity leave, almost to make a statement saying that men need to go on a paternity leave uh, in order to take care of their children and their families at the end of August. But it's not exactly been in this peaceful period of absence. Has it has been. not been the most relaxing paternity leave, I imagine. Not not that any paternity leave would it's be not. that relaxing, but no. <laughs> uh, he, you know, even before uh, this this story that uh, uh, the Robert Mueller's special counsel is looking into stuff that happened on Facebook, he was getting involved in. The DACA advocacy. He was raising money for the uh, hurricane victims. He was sort of, you know, basically present on Facebook like he had never gone away. And I think, and that speaks to the fact that, you know, over the last eight months or so, Mark Zuckerberg has become a political figure. Uh, he's gone on this listening tour. He's putting himself out there in a way that, you know, basically people who are running for president do. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's running for president. And I, I think that's pretty unlikely, but it, it is a shift for him. And it, it speaks both to his influence and, and, and power and also Facebook's, um, you know, influence and, and power and, and the fact that this company is worth like a half a trillion dollars. Well, so when you talk about his politicking, we're talking about a national tour where he went to factories, where he went to churches, a very classic kind of uh, campaign run sort of, uh, of affair. If it's not to set the stage for a possible political career, 
Why is he doing it? So I, I think it's it is possible that he's setting the stage for a political career. If he's not, um, and he says he's not running for president, he told uh, me and my co-writer Sarah Fryer he's not running for president. I think what he's doing is basically playing a little bit of defense. I mean, I think the uh, the events over the last. Uh, few months, really, uh, pretty much since the election, um, have raised questions about how Facebook is affecting our discourse. Mark Zuckerberg kind of in the immediate aftermath of the election said he didn't think that fake news, you know, was much of a thing and kind of laughed it off. And as we've learned more both about, you know, kind of what happened during the, the, the presidential campaign and how important social media was. And now these new revelations that it maybe it wasn't just that, um, you know, the Clinton and, and Trump used social media in the campaign, which we kind of knew, but that the you know the Russian government or people connected to the Russian government were also trying to use this thing. Um, it really cuts against the, the the sort of brand promise of Facebook, and I think could lead to you know additional regulation. We're, we're seeing um, you know a lot of scrutiny in Europe right now. Uh, you know that there's there there are several different actions going on, and and that scrutiny is is now migrating to the United States. So I think if he's not running for president. Um, he is probably partly, you know, just wants to get a better sense of who his customers are, and I think partly wants to, you know, show people that Facebook is is not to be feared. Yeah, well, I imagine that regulation uh, is definitely something that they talk a lot about internally at Facebook. Another tension that your article really highlighted, which I really loved, was this idea that uh, while Mark Zuckerberg would like to think of Facebook as bringing people together and has espoused, uh, you know, sort of the universalism of a lot of tech companies, a lot of people criticize Facebook for alienating people and not being a satisfying kind of relationship building tool, but rather uh, something that keeps people in their bubbles and frankly, away from actual human interaction. Right. I mean, this is he's sort of over the last few months, he's developed this kind of political philosophy, which is that uh, the reason that Donald Trump won, the reason that uh, Brexit um, you know, happen. The reason that we have this rise of nationalism, you know, around the world is that there's sort of a, a sense of isolation. People are not joining things in the way they used to. Church attendance is lower. You know, little leagues are lower. This this idea became popular around 2000 with the publication of this book, Bowling Alone. Uh, Zuckerberg has kind of discovered the idea. The problem is that a lot of people think Facebook is sort of causing this. Yes, it's, it's, exactly. And so, so he his argument is sort of like the way to make the world better is with more. Facebook, whereas a critic might say, no, in fact, you know, you're this is this is like the uh, an expression of all, all the things that are wrong with the world. And I think that is what is so dangerous about what's happening in Washington right now. Like that is why Facebook is worried, uh, because this really cuts against the sort of promise of the of, of the company. Yeah. You, you had a statistic in here that about five percent of Facebook users consider the interactions that they have to be meaningful on Facebook. That was stunning to me. Yeah. How does he respond to that? So so the statistic is they're they're part of groups that they find meaningful. Um and 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 a lot of uh, almost everyone on Facebook is sort of it has interacted with the groups portion of it. It's it's like how you go to an event or or whatever. Uh, Pantsuit Nation, the Hillary Clinton group was a a group. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is disappointed in that. He you know the fact that only a hundred million people, hundred million people sounds like a lot, are in meaningful groups strikes him as as a failure of of the platform and something that needs to be corrected. And he's told um, his employees, as we've as we wrote in the story, that he wants to get to a billion people in meaningful groups. Mark Zuckerberg loves 
things that come in, you know, billions. billions. <laughs> uh, and, and so that's the big goal. That's the push. So that would be like a tenfold um, improvement in, in their group's product. So that's what they're working on right now. This is a fantastic story. I love the ending, too, where he really bristles against former coverage of, of Bloomberg Business Week and how he outsources some of his uh, personalized Facebook page and, and other. Um, and it sort of highlights how he wants to seem like the guy next door, but kind of can't be because he likes things in billions and most of us can't afford to. Max Chafkin, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Max Chafkin is technology reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, really a fabulous story. I recommend checking it out. Well, right now I have two big questions about equity markets. One is, will banks benefit as the Fed withdraws stimulus or not? And the second one is, is tech the next shoe to drop with some of the big favorites of the year uh, plunged, uh, facing a potential fall? To answer both of those questions is Phil Orlando, chief equity strategist at Federated Investors, who joins us now. Phil, I want to start with the first question. Sure thing. Bank stocks. They're up more than 10% this year. A lot yes. of people think that they're going to be uh, in prime position to capture uh, extra profits from any of volatility as the Fed backs away from their stimulus as well as higher yields. What we're seeing now is not a very clear picture. Volatility expectations not up, even as the Fed withdraws stimulus. Rates, yes, in the short term up, but long term, we're seeing that yield curve narrow. Is this a net benefit for the banks? Or frankly, is this going to make it even harder for the banks going forward? So our view is that the banks are one of the prime beneficiaries of, of what we believe will be this sort of unfolding Fed policy. So Yellen yesterday lays out uh, the case for beginning the balance sheet shrinkage starting in October. Uh, that shrinkage over the course of the next few years should gradually take the Fed's balance sheet down from about $4.5 trillion to something in the order of 2 to $3 trillion dollars. That's the level that I think will be sort of the new normal for the Fed. The, the, some of the experts have said that that process will be the equivalent of, of moving interest rates up by about 75 basis points over right. time. Um, with inflation uh, troughing a little bit here, the Fed wants to give itself a couple more months for the core PCE to perk up. By the end of the year, we think that will happen. We think there's another rate hike coming quarter point uh, at the end of the year. So the prospect of, of the withdrawal of accommodation from the Federal Reserve, both in terms of the balance sheet and adjusting the, uh, the Fed funds rate, we think will we'll allow interest rates to move up over time. I, I think the bond market has started to price that in already. Just in the last month or so, we've gone from just over the 2% level. We're up in the 2 and a quarter to 2.3% level right now. In the 10-year uh, U.S. Treasury yield. Yeah. Thank you. Benchmark 10s. Uh, banks will benefit from higher interest rates. It'll widen their margins. Uh, this What the Fed is doing implies that they're there is an expectation of firmer economic growth. The increased lending activity will help the banks as well. So we're absolutely right there with your first premise. Financial stocks should benefit from this, and I think that's why they're, they're starting to rally. So which uh, banks in particular do you like from here, given current valuations and given that uh, forecast for banks benefiting from the Fed's withdrawal? Well, you know, I wasn't prepared to come on and drop a bunch of names, but certainly our favorite 
uh, J.P. Morgan Chase in terms of uh, their their management, their their capitalization, the uh, uh, the breadth of the markets that they're involved in. They they should be the the poster child of of a large cap money center bank that that uh, will benefit from the trends we've discussed. Uh, what about okay? So let's let's shift. So you're you're bullish on banks from here, and you Correct. think that they 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 stand to benefit uh, from the Fed's withdrawal from their stimulus. Let's move on to tech, because the FANG stocks obviously have been huge drivers behind this year's rally in, in, in the S&P 500 NASDAQ. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, do you think that they are threatened from here due to increased scrutiny from uh, governments, as well as, frankly, uh, not being able to really meet such high benchmarks that they have set for themselves? Well, you know, technology stocks are a sector that we've liked, and, and they've actually done pretty well here. If anything, we think that the, the pattern of regulation that we've seen over the last seven or eight years has probably peaked and is starting to go the other way. Uh, additionally, as, as we would look at sort of this change in administration, one of the things that we're hoping to see, frankly, that we expect to see over the next year or so, is uh, this whole repatriation idea, uh, and and one of the one of the central tenets of that uh, is that if we're successful on repatriation, uh, literally a couple of trillion dollars is going to come flowing back into the United States from overseas coffers, looking for something uh, productive to do with it. One of the things that that we think is going to happen is that companies, and if you study this, the corporate capex has just fallen off a cliff the last five or six years. Companies have stopped investing in themselves. And uh, I think if there's this incremental amount of, of cash flow that needs to find a home, companies have not invested in themselves. The, the, we, we are in need of a technology upgrade in, in a lot of, of legacy-type companies. I think there's going to be a technology upgrade cycle uh, as part of this CapEx boom that we're looking for that will benefit technology companies. Now, maybe that's one of the reasons why tech companies have done so well to date. We think there's a little bit of a sort of a value rotation going on right now. Energy stocks doing better, financial stocks doing better, as opposed to the growth stocks like technology, which have had a terrific year up until now. But I think looking longer term out into the cycle, we think technology stocks will be a beneficiary of some sort of uh, an infrastructure, you know, upgrade cycle based upon some capex dollars flowing back into the market. You know, I want to push back on that a little bit because uh, you know there is this expectation that cash repatriation will create some kind of boon to uh, to those particular uh, companies, at least their stocks, and yet a company like Apple has basically used a lot of the cash that they have stored overseas by way of borrowing money. Uh, they can issue as much debt as they want, and they've been issuing incredibly aggressively, more than seven issuances so far this year. And they've been using the proceeds to do buyback shares and, and, and do whatever they want. I mean, they've been buying back $300 billion uh, worth of shares uh, through 2018, I believe, through next year. So, I mean, I, you could argue that they already have been deploying that cash through the debt markets. Not every company is uh, is as pristine as Apple. Uh, you could make the argument, though, and they've talked about the fact of trying to move some of their manufacturing from 
let's say, China back into the United States. So, so maybe if they got some of their cash home, uh, they may use that to, uh, you know, build that, that, that new, you know, high-end plant somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, Amazon has talked about uh, building a, uh, a second corporate headquarters somewhere in the United States. Uh, you know, New York or Chicago or Detroit or whatever. We don't know where they're going to do this. But so I, I think companies for the first time in a really long time are looking at this sort of sea change, if you will, in terms of mindset out of Washington, in terms of being either business friendly or not business friendly, and saying, wait a second, you know, we had an environment where, where Washington wasn't terribly friendly to us. Now that's changed. Now we may get a couple of billion dollars back to, to uh, impart, invest in things like, like corporate CapEx, which frankly we haven't done for the last five or six years. Uh, so this may be an opportunity to sort of dust off those plans that we shelved and uh, uh, t- take a look at whether or not it, it, it makes sense to do something here. Phil Orlando, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist at Federated Investors, bullish on banks, seeing long-term opportunity in tech stocks. Uh, definitely an interesting issue to keep track of the cash repatriation and what that would do, uh, both respect to capital investment as well as share buybacks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.